Welcome again to the Björkness podcast. Today we're discussing flood prediction with machine learning. I'm Stephen Outen, here with my colleague Ingil Pilskog. Good day. Throughout history, humans have always congregated around rivers for the fresh water, food and ease of transport they provide, so flooding has been an ever-present danger. As population increases, so does the exposure of people and property. While good preparations can stave off the worst impacts of a flood, this requires knowledge of when a flood is coming. Emerging technologies like machine learning may hold the key to reliable flood prediction. We're joined today by Jenny Hagen, a PhD student at the University of Bergen and a specialist in machine learning. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, we know the basics of flooding. There's too much water in the river, water level rises, it bursts its banks and floods out into the surrounding area. This is, of course, primarily a meteorological problem from too much rain or too much rain and too high temperatures in the case of snow melt. How is flood prediction actually handled today? So, uh, flood prediction today, in the case of Norway, is handled by the Norwegian Water Resources and Energy Directorate, NVE. Uh, and they have a collaboration with the Meteorological Institute, so they get um, rainfall forecasts, which they feed to hydrological models that convert rainfall into discharge. And with this, we can have estimates, if we go even further, with hydraulic models to get the extent of flooding if large uh, discharges are expected. So if we just take a step back to the, the hydrological model, mm -hmm. what does that do? So there are different types of hydrological models. Um, often you have a simple bucket model that basically consists of layers of um, soil where you can have it. It's like a bucket where the input is rainfall and the output is a discharge or the water balance of the bucket. So then you can have a gridded model where the different grids interact with each other depending on the slope, the soil type, the water uh, retention capacity and so on. You will have the movement of the discharge within your model domain. The basic flow of this then is that you have your weather forecast model giving you prediction of precipitation and then this is fed into one of these hydrological bucket model that sort of works out how much runoff there is and how much discharge there is and then this goes to the hydraulic model to say how this would sort of overflow and what area this would cover when this spreads out. Exactly. How is flooding expected to change as the world warms? And there is a general consensus that wet areas do get wetter and uh, dry areas do get drier. Um, and with this, it follows that floods can also intensify, become either more frequent or larger um, in terms of magnitudes, so the discharge may increase as the rainfall increases. But there is also a lot of uncertainty um, associated to these uh, projected changes in floods, um, not the least because of non-stationary processes, both in the atmosphere and the catchment response. So your work is in applying machine learning to this problem of flood prediction. Um, but what exactly is machine learning. It's something we hear a lot about in media and in the news nowadays, but what is it? How does it actually work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, machine learning is a sub-branch of artificial intelligence, and uh, there is uh, there are three main categories of algorithms. So we have supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. 
A supervised learning technique could be something like Google Translate, where you have a um, Italian word that can be directly linked to a Norwegian word and so translated in sequences. Then unsupervised learning is more like um, when you, for example, on Facebook, you may see from time to time that uh, Facebook recommends new friends to you. And this is based on your activity on Facebook, uh, you, the posts that you've liked, the pages you've viewed, the people you've followed, your friends. And so they come up with suggestions of people that are similar to you based on your activity on Facebook. So this is unsupervised learning. And then the last category, reinforcement learning, is largely used in um, robotics. Uh, and these algorithms map, uh, they, they're trained to, to do decision making. So they map actions to outcomes using a sanction and reward system that kind of resembles the way you would teach your dog new tricks or not to pee on the carpet. This is reinforcement learning. This is actually used for things like uh, chess computers and things like this, isn't it? Yes. Where it will actually uh, choose its own moves and then it sees how well it did in the game and it evaluates that in some way and then it, it keeps working through and effectively just playing thousands and thousands of games and learning what techniques actually worked better. Yes, yes. And this has actually been one of the biggest benefits of... Uh, machine learning, as I understand it, just that we are generating a huge amount of data these days. We have so many observations, so many satellites and so on, and so much model output. And one of the best things about machine learning is that it can effectively, the machine can go through tons of data that people, we just couldn't do it. We just couldn't employ enough people, enough researchers to go through this much data in as much detail. Yeah, exactly. And I think here it's important to mention that, um, you know, the most important thing for a machine learning model is not necessarily the model structure, because in many cases you will see comparisons of different algorithms and they do um, quite uh, perform quite similarly on many tasks. But the most important thing is, in fact, the data quality and quantity. So if you put garbage in, of course, you will get garbage out. <laughs> okay, so we've known the current state of flood prediction and we had some ideas about machine learning. This brings us, of course, to you and your PhD. What are you doing? How are you applying machine learning to flood prediction? Right, um, so in my PhD project, we are trying to link large-scale atmospheric circulation to flooding in Norwegian catchments using machine learning. Uh, the first step that we have taken is a uh, quite a simple um, analysis uh, using three uh, traditional machine learning techniques. So we have the random forest, uh, the support vector machine, and the shallow neural network. So let me quickly explain what these three are. Uh, in a random forest, we put in our input variables. Uh, and we get out the average prediction from multiple uh, regression models. Uh, in a support vector machine, we input the same thing, but we uh, get out only one regression model from one regression curve. In a shallow neural network, uh, we have the additional complication of um, activation functions and randomized noise. So our regression can uh, not only is it nonlinear, but it's also not fully traceable. So we cannot uh, look into the model structure the way we can see the model structure of, for example, a random forest. 
So it's sort of a, like a black box for you? Exactly. It's yeah. a black box. So in all cases, you're putting in some sort of variable and what you're getting out is a regression model, which is going to link that variable to, for example, stream flow in the rivers. Yes. So our uh, machine learning techniques are our regression models and they are put together with different kinds of structure. But essentially, they take the same inputs and they also predict the same type of output. Uh, so with these three methods, we compare the ability of these uh, algorithms to directly um, link selected variables from the large-scale atmospheric circulation above a hydrological station to reconstruct the stream flow and predict the stream flow in an unseen period. Okay, so essentially you're taking large-scale variables like uh, pressure, precipitation, for example, pressure, precipitation, temperature, winds, and so on. You're taking this over uh, some particular station where you're monitoring the river, mm -hmm. and then you're feeding in those large-scale variables, and you're training it to reproduce what is seen in the stream flow. And then separately, once you've got the model trained, and it knows how these are related, you then use it to for a prediction. So you give it a totally different set of large-scale variables which haven't been seen yet, or perhaps will be seen forecast for next week. And then from that, it will tell you what the river's going to do. Yeah, exactly. So with our data, we usually split in uh, the context of machine learning models, we usually split the data into three data sets. So we have one training set, which we use to <coughs> optimize the parameters of the different machine learning models. So this is your input that the machine uses to work out the regression relationship. Yes, exactly. Then we have a cross-validation set to, um, to fine-tune these parameters to make sure that it, it captures the, um, the important statistical relationships and generalizes on the data. And so we have a third set, which is the testing set. And this is unseen to the model until the point where you want to test your model. So at that point, you're saying we've built the model, we've polished and improved the model, and now we're going to stop tinkering with it. And this is just going to be set in stone. That's our model. Let's run it against this test data and see if it actually gives us the right results. Exactly. Excellent. You keep mentioning large scale variables as your input. But this is a little different, isn't it? Because past literature, past works, many of them, they haven't really linked large scale variables. Right. So um, past studies have largely focused on either autoregressive models, which take past um, observations of past stream flow as input to predict stream flow in the future, or it has been focused on um, linking large-scale atmospheric variables to monthly, seasonal, or annual stream flow, and not so much on the daily level, which is the focus of this uh, first study of my PhD. Okay, so previous works then, it's always been, if you look at the large-scale atmosphere and try to use this to say what the stream flow is going to be, you do it for on monthly timescales or something like this, or annual timescales, very, very long time. Yes. You don't actually try saying today or tomorrow there's this sort of weather, so we're going to have that sort of stream. Yes. But that's the difference. That's what you're actually doing. That's what's new in your PhD. Yes. So when you try this, uh, applying this to daily timescales, there is actually quite a big difference between variability in the atmosphere 
on monthly or annual or interannual timescales and the variability on, on daily timescales. So how big a problem is sort of this variability when you switch down to daily timescales? Yeah, so um, that's a very good point. So all the, the different rivers and different catchments have different response times and linkages to the large-scale atmospheric circulation. So some catchments may be bigger and some may be smaller. Some may be steeper, some may be uh, mountainous, and some may also have snow melt as a driving factor of floods. And so we saw that using our uh, feature selection procedure, uh, we saw that there were differences between snowmelt-driven flood regimes and rainfall-driven flood regimes, in which the um, aggregation times of the snowmelt-driven flood regimes were uh, longer than in the rainfall-driven flood regimes. So in snowmelt-driven flood regimes, um, we saw that temperature was the most important variable on three distinct aggregation periods, so up to three weeks, then one to two months, and then up to three months. Um, whereas in rainfall-driven flood regimes, um, it was more the winds and the moisture in the lower level of the atmosphere uh, that was important on shorter aggregation periods between two to three weeks. Um, and so the reconstruction of streamflow was also, the, the accuracy of the reconstruction of the streamflow was different in snowmelt-driven and rainfall-driven flood regimes. Um, and we found that it's more difficult to accurately, on the daily level, reconstruct streamflow in rainfall-driven flood regimes. And this may have something to do with the role of local variability and the strength of the relationship between the um, large-scale atmosphere and the catchment and the forcing and response relationship there. It's interesting you mentioned this sort of, uh, sort of different uh, times and lag that you have of sort of the large scale uh, feeding into the stream flow, changing the stream flow. Um, you mentioned previously that uh, sort of hydraulic models, which would uh, look at how the stream is actually flooding out and the area that it's flooding into, this is somewhere where machine learning has actually proven very successful. Yeah, so um, there have been successful attempts at learning the um, forcing response relationship within a hydraulic model with machine learning techniques uh, called module emulation. So instead of running a full, uh, full hydraulic model, you would train a machine learning model to learn what the hydraulic model would output and then instead run the machine learning model to output the flood extent. So this is a supervised learning approach? Yes. It's actually that we have the hydraulic model that's uh, based on physics and science and equations, and it actually uh, works very well, but it's very time-consuming to run on a computer. Yes. But if we can teach it that when this model is given A, it outputs B using machine learning, then machine learning can do this a lot faster. Yes, and potentially we could also use it in operational mode. There's also a lot of uh, concerns and limitations uh, towards machine learning. One of them, of course, is that it is a statistical relationship and it is purely a statistical tool. 
in our uh, paper, we did a feature selection procedure where we afterwards verified that we could physically explain the input variables to the machine learning model. Because of course, if you end up predicting the temperature with the amount of ice cream that your neighbor has eaten, then you know it's garbage in again, garbage out. Um, I think the main challenge is here to find uh, a way where the rapidly evolving machine learning techniques can help generate knowledge and manage knowledge. So we need to not reject it because it is a black box. Of course. We need to um, find an interface where the existing hydrological knowledge can be utilized in machine learning models and find gaps where machine learning may help us generate new knowledge. And especially so where we have large amounts of data that we have no other way of, um, you know, potentially finding other or new, discover new patterns in that data that could be, uh, you know, causal relationship. It could also be, you know, spurious relationships. But then that's why we need the, the discipline knowledge to really uh, have a critical eye on what the machine learning models output. I think this is, is I think if you hit the nail on the head with that one. It's very much seems to be the key aspect of machine learning is that you should not use it if as a black box. It is a black box, but what comes in and what comes out, this has to then be looked at and thought about and studied. And this is where, of course, you come in. Yes. <laughs> The other problem with this, of course, is that since people know that it is a black box in this sense, and there are these concerns about it, if you actually take this operational, one of the critical factors you need is public trust. Mm -hmm. People need to believe that when this thing turns around and says, ah, you know, there's going to be a flood somewhere, it's not just because, you know, your neighbor's eating lots of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, especially with you know, non-transparent model structures, black box like uh, neural networks, we have this issue of trust. Although there are ways to extract some information from the model structure, at the end of the day, it is a black box. Um, that's why also some hybrid approaches may be a way to circumvent this to some extent, where we don't fully trust necessarily in the beginning the neural networks, but we may have a transition where we combine, you know, physically based models with machine learning models. Over time, we may gain trust if it works, we may gain trust in these model structures, and we may have, you know, a separate machine learning model running next to the, uh, the state-of-the-art hydrological model, for example. What future developments do you see for your work? Right, so we are in fact moving now towards deep learning. Uh, we will be using uh, something called long short-term memory neural networks. Uh, these are, as opposed to the shallow neural networks in, in the first paper, these actually have a sort of memory. So the neural network can remember um, sequences of input data that it's seen in the past and utilize this to give better estimates of the uh, response of the river to atmospheric forcing. Are you at all considering the possibility, since you're working on the daily timescales, of applying this in some way to operational forecasts? Um, I think it's the future, to be honest. 
Um, but I think for me and my project, we are more looking at the, the uh, long term, both in the past and into the future. So it's not going to be part of my project. But I know that there are already initiatives going on uh, around in both Norway and Europe on making machine learning models operational for flood forecasting. So this is actually something that you may be working on in your future scientific career. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Our time is coming to an end. Flood prediction will continue to be a vital issue for society for decades to come. With the sheer amount of data we are generating from observations and modelling, machine learning may be the tool that gives us new insights and lets us see that the, f the forest for the trees when it comes to flooding. We'd like to thank our guest, Jenny Hagen, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again for the next Björkness podcast from myself, Stephen Alton, and my colleague, Ingil Pilskog. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. You have now been listening to a podcast from the Björkness Center for Climate Research. The Björkness Center is a partnership between the University of Bergen, Norwegian Research Center, NORS, the Nansen Environmental and Remote Sensing Center, and Institute of Marine Research. The music is by Lee Rosevere, Arcade Montage, under Creative Commons BY 3.0. The podcast is edited and responsible for the podcast is me, Ingel Pilskog, Associated Professor at Western University of Applied Sciences.